Let us pray. Father and our God, what a blessing it is to have your word, be able to study it, meditate upon it, and to sit under the preaching and teaching of your truth. Lord, I pray that for your people in our midst, that it would be a true blessing, that it would be edifying to us and sanctifying to us. Lord, those who are here or listening that have not yet come to faith and repentance, I pray that it would convict them, that it would prick their conscience, Lord, that they would be jealous, jealous for you, and jealous for the grace and mercy you have shown your people. Lord, those whose hearts are hardened, I pray that you would give our, our pastor the boldness and clarity to offend them with your word, that only your word can break through such hardness. Lord, I pray for him this morning, and I pray for us that our ears would be open, and our hearts would be open to receive your truth. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. If you would take with take your Bibles with me and turn to the first epistle to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Our task today, or my task, your task as, as, as you hear, is to meditate upon the duties and responsibilities of church members one to another. If you're a guest with us this morning, ordinarily, ordinarily, uh, I, I preach ex- in an expository manner, meaning I, I read a text and we go through books of the Bible or large sections of Scripture, and we unpack together what the Spirit of God is teaching line by line in that particular text. Presently, I'm in the midst of a topical series. Uh, we've been doing a series on church membership. We've looked at the duties and responsibilities and requirements for deacons and for pastors, elders, and also the responsibilities, requirements, and duties of church members. So today, we've, we're going to look at the responsibilities of members, of church members, one to another. And we've considered over the last several weeks, the qualifications of church members, the necessity of church membership. Uh, last week, we looked at the shared hope that we have as, as members of the body of Christ because of, as a consequence of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the promise resting upon us to have new life in Him, not only in this age, but especially in the age to come. So as we approach chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians today, this is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It is a vivid metaphor that Paul unpacks for us. Paul illustrates the body of Christ with our own human bodies. So he he compares eyes and ears or feet and hands to the body of Christ, to human beings gathered together in unity, in Christ. But as I said, this is not necessarily going to be an exposition of this Scripture passage. Rather, what I intend to do is draw out some of the thematic 
priorities that the Apostle Paul teaches here and then apply that in, in a more topical way to how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. What, our, what are our duties to one another? What are our responsibilities as one member to another member within a local church? And again, my intent is not to be exhaustive. That would be a whole, another whole series within a series, I suppose, and even then probably would not reach a point of, of exhaustion. But here's what I want to do. is propose to you three categories, uh, three, three lenses through which we can consider our duties as church members one to another. And if I can help you think about your duties in those three distinct categories, I trust that the Spirit of God will work in you to recall to mind or bring to mind other duties that I don't even mention, either because, just for the sake of time, I didn't get to mention all of those today, or because in my study, it didn't even occur to me. I didn't think about it, but you will think about it with the Spirit's help. So again, not exhaustive list of duties, but a framework for you to think about and hopefully go home and meditate even further upon 1 Corinthians 12, but also church life in general, and be able to ask yourself, Am I faithful in these areas? God has done an immense thing in my life to bring me to faith and repentance. He's joined me to Christ, and through Christ, I have fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and as a virtue of that union with the triune God, I have a fellowship and a unity with other human beings in a particular way that I don't enjoy with other human beings. How do I think about that? How do I apply those things? So here are those three categories, and as, you, as I read in a moment, I'm going to begin in verse 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, and read through the end of the chapter. Think about this in three ways. As Paul uses this vivid metaphor, think about your individual duties exercised privately. To use Paul's analogy, what is the job of the hand all by itself? Or what is the job of the eye, or the ear, or any other member, part of the body, by itself. So category one, your individual duties exercised privately. But then secondly, your individual duties exercised outwardly. What is the hand's relationship to the rest of the body? What is the eye's relationship to the rest of the body? And thirdly, what are our corporate duties exercised publicly? So private duties exercised privately, or individual duties exercised privately, individual duties exercised outwardly, and corporate duties exercised publicly. The conclusion that I hope we will draw together is that each member of a local church has the duty before God to exercise his or her gifts and graces toward one another in the body of Christ, individually and corporately, both privately and publicly. So may the Spirit of God help us as we think through these things. Let's read together, or I will read and you will hear 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the living God. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one body we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honest, uh, honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I want to draw out for you a couple of, of or a few key themes before we look at those, this threefold categories that I propose to you. One of the, the, the key themes that's repeated three different times here, is God has caused. God has caused. What Paul shows to us is the sovereignty of God in the distribution and the formation of gifts and graces among the people of God. And what we find is there's a diversity of gifts because God planned it that way. There, is a, there are a diversity of skills, abilities, personalities, temperaments, strengths, and weaknesses because God said so. In his wisdom, in his perfection, this is his decree. This is what he has done. And Paul emphasizes that, repeating it three different times. God arranged, or God has appointed. Secondly, notice here, in, in this, this metaphor, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a vivid metaphor that children, even you understand this. You understand this very well, that your hand is not the same as your knee, right? It has a different function. Your eye doesn't do the same thing as your big toe does it? And you know this. But at the same time, all those parts are part of the same body, aren't they? So what Paul's giving to us is this picture of diversity and unity, and unity and diversity, and, and, and saying we ought to celebrate the wisdom of God in these things. And thirdly, that with this unity and diversity come mutual benefits and duties. And you know this in your own body. Your hand has certain duties with respect to other parts of your body. Think about brushing your teeth. Your, your, your teeth have a certain need that only your hand can accomplish for them, right? 
and, and it's a silly example, kids, but you know this, you have to have your hand, unless you're really flexible and nimble, you're probably not brushing your teeth with your foot. Maybe you could. You couldn't do it with your elbow, could you? You have to have your hand. And there's a cooperation that God has designed within your human body that is mimicked. It serves as a picture in the body of Christ. So let's think about these three categories. First of all, let's think about the individual duties that are expressed privately. What do I mean by that? The individual duties of the Christian faith that are carried out privately are not only carried out for for our benefit alone, but these are actually exercised for the sake of Christ and for the good of our brothers and sisters in our local church. Now, when we think about the individual duties of our Christian faith, things probably already immediately come to your mind to study the scriptures, to pray, to, to share the gospel where you have opportunities in those private spheres. But do you know when you do those things, they are not only for your benefit only, but actually have a corporate benefit. And I'm not claiming, I'm not claiming that those individual duties are to be preferred or placed above and beyond or over and above public or corporate duties, but we do need to understand that either positively or negatively, our observance of private duties or our neglect of them has corporate implications. In fact, profound corporate implications. In Philippians chapter 2, In verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always observed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. The, The scriptures are clear, and we could turn to dozens of other places and say that we have individual duties before the Lord. We have individual duties that we owe to Christ because we are Christians. Prayer, studying our Bibles, studying sound doctrine, pursuing personal holiness, seeing our faith and praying for our faith to be increased. And by privately, I don't mean secretly necessarily, but I mean merely in the sphere of your home. Your private duties are those that are exercised in the sphere of your home. Maybe it's just you by yourself. Maybe it's a husband and wife. Maybe it's a husband and wife and, and children. Maybe it's a, it's a single mom. Maybe it's a single dad. It's, it's a very different, all different kinds of combinations. But I'm thinking about the sphere of the home. It's very interesting, and we looked at this uh, some months back during an exposition of, of the book of Colossians. If you want to turn there to Colossians chapter 3, Paul begins this chapter with this sort of therefore kind of a statement. He says, if then, if then, or really better, since, since it's true that you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. And then Paul goes on to speak about the fact that we have a newness in us, a new life within us because of what Christ has done. If you, if you are a Christian, It means that your old man, your old woman has been crucified with Christ and you've been raised with him as a function of the fact that that your sins have been forgiven and that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. And Paul speaks about this, he uses the language of the new man. There is a new man, a new woman, a new creature in Christ now. 
And you know what the very first thing that Paul talks about? In, verse, in chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 18, he goes to the home. Where, where this newness in Christ is most to be benefited or most to be shown as beneficial is in your own home. But we also know that's the place where it can most cause us a difficulty in the absence of those things, isn't it? Look what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Listen to this. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Did you catch that? Wives, when you encourage and exhort your husband and love him, do you know it benefits him, certainly. Do you know it actually has corporate implications? Your husband is a much better churchman, much better church member because of the love for his wife. Husbands, as you are exhorting your wife and praying for her and encouraging her, do you know that she is a better servant of Christ? Because of that, fathers, mothers, when you're training and instructing and discipling your children, do you know that has great importance for the whole body of Christ, not just for your own home? And the other side of that, if you neglect those duties, the harm that comes to the name of Christ and the testimony of the gospel and the unity within the body of Christ. Children, listen to me. This is very clear. Paul says you are actually serving Christ When you obey your parents, when you submit eagerly to your parents, do you know that you are serving the Lord in that moment? Sometimes we don't think about that, but that's that's the reality. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so when we think about uh, family worship, we think about personal devotions, we think about catechizing our children, encouraging one another, exhorting one another to holiness, whether that's individually, whether that's parents to children, husbands and wives to one another, even, even an employer and an employee. That relationship Paul thinks about here in that same sphere of the home, those have, either for good or ill, can have a dramatic effect upon the overall health of a local church. And it's not just in Paul's day, and it's not just in our day that we can imagine such things. You, you, most of you know, we, we subscribe to a confession of faith, a doctrinal statement that was written in the mid-17th century, written in the 1600s. And in the original preface to that confession, we read these words. And verily, or truly, there is one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day, which we cannot but touch upon and earnestly urge a redress of, and that is the neglect of the worship of God in families by those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. Do you hear what they're saying? They're looking at their own world, their own culture, their own community, and they're saying, in our day, there's a decay in religion. You know what the spring is? You know what the cause of that is? It's a neglect of worship in the home. It's a a neglect of these household duties. It goes on to say, may not the gross ignorance and instability of many with the profaneness of others be justly charged upon their parents and masters? 
who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk when they were young, but have neglected those frequent and solemn commands which the Lord hath laid upon them, so to catechize and instruct their children and their servants that their tender years might be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures, and also by their own omission of prayer and other duties of religion in their families, together with the ill example of their loose conversation, having inured them first to a neglect and the contempt of all piety and religion. See, we look around our landscape today, and we see a decline in families. We see a decline in churches. We see a decline in the, 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 the broader acceptance of the Christian faith. And we think, wow, this is really new. This is unique to our age. It isn't new. It isn't unique. In every age, there have been those who were faithful in those duties, and there are those who have been neglectful in those duties. And so the, when we neglect these private duties, we need to understand that the effect can be quite profound, and, and in fact, unexpectedly so, perhaps, on the overall health of the local church. I think we can state it as, as a maxim, really, in, in both directions, that, that weak churches lead to weak families. Amen? But weak families can also weaken the church and weaken our testimony together. In Colossians 3, that we just read a few moments ago, that same paragraph in which Paul exhorts wives and husbands and parents and children and, and bondservants and masters, he, he closes, man, I'm going to reread this, this profound statement. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I wonder, do you think that way? Do you think about your private duties in the sphere of your home and the sphere of your workplace being instrumental to the health of a local church? I think sometimes we, don't, we neglect to think that way. But that's what the Scriptures teach us. That those private duties or those individual duties exercised privately or in our failure to exercise those duties, either for good or ill, your church is affected by those things. Neglect of your private duties is, first of all, a disservice to Christ. And it's a disservice to his brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters that are gathered in his local church. Now, this is reflected all of our members. If you're a member of GFPC Conroe, you have taken the same membership vows. You've joined under the same church covenant. And one of the, the, the sections in our church covenant says this. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our family and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. See, we recognize in our church covenant, that these private duties are necessary for good churchmanship. Sometimes we don't think that way. We think private things are private. The sphere of our home is the sphere of our home, and, and they never, don't ever overlap. But that isn't true, is it? As a church member, you must take seriously your private duties in the sphere of your home, in the sphere of your workplace, 
knowing and believing at the practice or neglect of those duties has its first reference to Christ, but also to your brothers and sisters here. So that's individual duties exercised privately. So that's our first category. And again, my list there isn't exhaustive, but hopefully to provoke you to think about those things in that way. Now let's think about the second category, the individual duties exercised outwardly. In addition to individual duties that are exercised privately, we must also attend to individual duties that are exercised outwardly. These duties take us outside of our own households, our own homes, our own workplaces, and and we have duties now that have to be exercised deliberately, intentionally, toward one another within a local church body. You you may be relieved to know, I'm not going to follow John Owen's outline. He has a wonderful little booklet republished several years ago by Banner of Truth, uh, and, and in that he had 15 categories or 15 duties of church members one to another. I'm not going to go through all 15 of them, I'm going to, but I am going to propose several to you, several categories. And what I'm going to do is give you the category of, of these things and, and read for you at least two or three scriptural passages in that, in that sphere, in that area, so that we can, again, provoke ourselves to think about what, our, what is my individual duty to all of you? What is your individual duty to your brothers and sisters within the church? What is your individual duty that's, that's expressed outwardly? First, love one another earnestly and sincerely. This is, our Lord Jesus said, the, the second great commandment that is like unto the first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And particularly, your closest neighbors, your neighbors by covenant within a church community. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, Peter says, Having purified our soul, your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John gives this to us as a test. It's almost like he kind of leans over and says, so you think you're a Christian. Do you love the brothers? Do you have a growing sense of love for the people of God? Or are they an inconvenience to you? a problem to be solved, something to be worked around. And Peter says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, you now have a love that ought to flow out of your purified hearts. So that first duty is to love one another. And and not to love just as a concept. Our our, our culture has just kind of gone mad with this whole idea that love is just a feeling that comes and goes. It's, It's just like a a, a, an aroma on the, on the wind. And yet, scripturally, the lo- love is, is a responsibility. It's an action. It's a duty. It has tangible expression. Do you love your brothers and sisters? And, and, and think in terms of your, your time, your gifts, your treasure. How is your love demonstrated? Second duty, love one another. This is, these are our individual duties, but exercised outwardly. Love one another 
Also, actively seek peace, unity, and forgiveness with your brothers and sisters. Actively, it's a key word, actively seek peace, unity, and forgiveness with your brothers and sisters. Our Lord Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see the kingdom of God. And it's not those who, who, he doesn't say blessed are the peace acceptors, it's the peacemakers. There's an active duty. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. See, there's a common feature among humanity that we, we are eager to be unified with people who are like us, who look like us, who come from the same background, who have the same shared interests, who have the same kinds of personalities. Those are, we like to love those people, but Jesus rebuked the Pharisees one time. He says, even the pagans do that. Even the pagans love people who are like them. Real Christian love is to love, as Paul says here, associate with the lowly. Not to look at other brothers and sisters and say, that one's a big toe. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm an exalted shoulder. I'm way up high. I can't associate with someone like that. See how, how brilliant Paul's metaphor is. We can think, Paul even says that, that to those less honorable parts, you know what we do? Is our body, we give the greater honor. And, and we know this, if you've ever injured, even I, several years ago, I stumped my little toe and broke it. Whole foot turned all different shades of purple and green, and, and my little toes are really little. And they don't even really touch the floor most of the time, but yet when I broke it, for the next several weeks, I was constantly aware of that little toe. It affected my whole body. It changed my gait, my walk, everything because of that, what shoes I could wear, the whole thing. So if you've been injured, sometimes you just sit wrong and you kind of stand up and that leg's falling asleep and you're planning on it and that leg didn't show up to work today. And you start walking across the room and realize, I've got a, I've got a problem for a minute. And yet in the body of Christ, Paul says, this is what can happen. There's a part that doesn't show up, and the body's deficient. Or there's a part that's weakened, either because of an injury in which the whole body now cares for that, or because of a neglect of some duty. Now the whole body's having to compensate in some way. There's an active seeking of unity. There's an active seeking of peace. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. When you are sinned against, how do you respond? Are you the one who's eager to find peace and seek forgiveness and receive someone's repentance? Or are you the one who says, I want to pound the flesh? I, I, your apology didn't measure up to my standards. I'm not going to forgive you yet. Well, the Bible gives upon us an individual duty, outwardly expressed, that we need to be eager to seek peace, eager to establish unity and maintain it, eager to extend forgiveness with our brothers and sisters. Thirdly, in terms of individual duties exercised outwardly, we, need to, we have the duty to exhort, admonish, and warn one another in truth and holiness. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The apostle here is speaking not to the pastors only, 
speaking to the whole congregation, exhort one another, encourage one another, both by your example and also by your timely seasonal words. You know, sometimes just showing up is a great encouragement. How many times have you been encouraged just because a brother happened to be there? A sister was there to hear you, to give to you that proverbial shoulder to cry on or the literal one. How often just being present is a great encouragement to us, but also to encourage one another with the word of God, to to give to to one another, to remind them of the hope that they have in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 5, Paul says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Then a few verses later, he says, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idle or the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Here, Paul's not speaking yet again to just the pastors alone or to the deacons alone. He's speaking to the entire congregation and says, this is the duty that God has pressed upon you individually, but to be exercised outwardly to admonish unruly or idle brothers and sisters in your midst. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Who has never needed that kind of kick in the pants? Who has never needed another brother or another sister to come along inside you and say, that was out of line? Yeah, I see that now. We need that, don't we? This is, a, this is a, an individual duty, but exercised outwardly. Are you willing to, to admonish someone else gently as, as one sinner to another to say, brother, you kind of blew it there, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Or sister, you, you can do better than that. I've seen you do better than that. But also to encourage the faint-hearted. Who hasn't been faint-hearted? Who hasn't walk through that valley of the shadow of death where you feel like, my faith is so weak. I am so discouraged in this moment. I don't need an admonishment. I need an exhortation. I need an encouragement here. And to be that brother, that sister who, who's there on the scene for that. To help the weak. To come alongside in a very tangible way, either by way of your word or your material goods or your time, to say, brother, I'm here to help you. I'm here to walk beside you when you're not able to put one foot in front of of the other by yourself. I'm here to be with you. Colossians chapter 3, immediately prior to the passage I read earlier, Paul says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And again, those are instructions not given to pastors alone, but to the entire body of Christ. I've lost count. Fourthly, in terms of our external du- or our individual duties exercised externally, bear one another's spiritual and physical burdens. Do you know you have a duty individually to bear the burdens of other members of the congregation? In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What law of Christ is he referring to? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. 
be willing to help a brother or sister bear their burdens, bear their, their spiritual burdens, their burdens of sin, their material burdens. In Romans 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. See, what's human nature? The dog-eat-dog, dog, right? It's the survival of the fittest. If there's a weak one among us, we take advantage of that. We climb over them to get what we want. We use their weakness to increase our own perception of ourselves. And the gospel demand upon us is exactly the opposite of that. You who are strong, you have an obligation. Because that gift, whatever strength you have, you know where that came from, right? It's a gift of God. And because he is the source of it, you have an obligation to bear with those among you that you see they're weak. Whether that's physical weakness, spiritual weakness, there's a frailty of some kind, financial weakness. The list could go on, but you have an obligation to bear with them. Lastly, and again, I'm not giving an exhaustive list. I'm not, I'm not attempting to, but I want to provoke you to think in these categories. What are your individual duties, your individual responsibilities that are, ought to be expressed outwardly? Here's the last one. Submit to and serve one another with humility and love. Submit to and serve one another. In 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And, and Peter's premise is that whatever gifts you have, are you able to encourage one another? Do you have, do you have financial means? Or do you have a gift of, of teaching? Do you have a gift of prayer? Do you have a gift of faith? Are you able, whatever you have, will you use that for your own benefit or for the blessing of those around you? 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There, there is a duty for all of us individually expressed outwardly to serve one another with humility, to serve one another with love. As you read through the New Testament epistles, as you read through the New Testament epistles, every single one of those letters that are written to churches, call the believers there to particular duties. Some of those are duties individually to God. We looked at those in that first section of the sermon. Individual duties that we owe to God, but have a benefit or a detriment to the rest of the body of Christ. But there are many, many other duties that are individual duties, but are to be expressed outwardly. Such as the ones that I've named here in your hearing. In our confession of faith, there's an entire chapter... It's a relatively short chapter, but chapter 27, that's called of the communion of the saints or of the fellowship of the saints. And, and listen to how this summarizes in very short words what the scriptures teach. Saints by profession. That means those who have named the name of Christ, they've confessed Christ, have been baptized according to the scriptures, that have been identified with his people. Saints by profession are bound. See, that's the language of duty are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. 
as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. See, there's a duty. If you are in Christ, you have received an infinite inheritance in Christ. And as a consequence of that, you now have a duty to exercise and to use whatever God has given to you individually. You are to use those things outwardly as a display of love and humility and service to your brothers and sisters. May the Lord grant to you grace to walk before him and before your brothers and sisters with with sincerity. See, it's easy at this point to hear these things and then say, okay, I've got to reform myself outwardly. I've got to be a better, I've got to do a better job of being nice to people around me. I got to, I've got to speak better. I've got to talk gooder to people around me, right? I've got to be more polite. I've got to be more, 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 you know, cooperative. And, and there's this sense of our outward moralist kind of shows up on the scene and says, I know what to do. I will make it appear that I'm exercising these duties so that other people will look and see how faithful and noble I am. But outward morality is of no eternal use if it's not accompanied by by hearts that genuinely love the Lord and love his people. Thomas Watson, uh, one of the Puritans, was, was known for his vivid word pictures, his vivid images, and I love this one. He says, speaking of this Outward morality, contrasting that to an internal godliness. He says, the dew lies on the leaf, the sap is hidden in the root. The moralist's religion is all in the leaf. It consists only in externals, but godliness is a holy sap, which is rooted in the soul. So we think about these duties to one another. May it be a holy sap rooted in our souls, not just dew on a leaf, that evaporates and burns off when the sun shines upon it. But the question there has to be wrestled with, are, are, you, are you in Christ? I mean, the only, the only way you have to exercise these duties to other men and women and other children around us with, with godly sincerity is that you've actually been changed from the inside out. Otherwise, it is just external morality. There, there are plenty of religions in the world who will be happy to teach you and train you in various you know, programs and rules of external morality. But that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Christ has already done these things. He is the only one who has ever served perfectly. He's the only one who's ever loved his brothers and sisters perfectly. He's the only one who's truly exercised his individual duty perfectly with respect to his outward expression of that. The only way for you and for me to love one another as we ought to. Because we have to be born again. We have to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we have to have tasted the sweet fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, by the power of His Spirit. If, if these things don't register with you, if they don't make sense to you, Will you, will you consider, is, am I in Christ? Am I born again? Do I know the power of the gospel at work within me, transforming me, transforming my cold, dead heart into one that, that overflows with generosity and humility and love for those around me, where I'm eager to give my time, I'm eager to give my, my treasure, I'm eager to give the gifts and talents that I have 
as an expression of service and love for one another? Will you seek then the power of the Spirit to display in you sincere fruit of your new birth? Not just an external morality that will fade, but, but will the Spirit of God produce in you an attitude of hospitality which eagerly shares gifts and graces along with your material goods, your time, your comforts for one another? and a striving after unity, a a working for the sake of peace. We pray the Holy Spirit will display in us a love which covers our brothers' and sisters' weaknesses. It doesn't use them to exploit them or to, to our own gain, our own advantage, but rather covers their weaknesses, exhorting one another to duty, admonishing one another in our, in our failings and our weaknesses, and encouraging one another to, to a shared holiness, a shared righteousness in Christ. Will our prayers be true expressions of thanksgiving, of of intercession for one another? We call upon the triune God to bless my brother, to bless my sister, to help them, to encourage them, to strengthen them. Will Will these individual duties be expressed outwardly in terms of formal and informal instruction, exhortations, admonishments, corrections from one to another. So having thought about individual duties that are expressed privately and individual duties that are expressed outwardly, I turn lastly to our corporate duties exercised publicly. We must devote ourselves to corporate duties of religion that are expressed, exercised publicly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning Because one, we've spent some time over the last few weeks looking at our duties of Christian worship and attending to the means of grace and the sacraments. So we've already gone, covered some of that ground. But with respect to our corporate duties in terms of admonishment, exhortation in a formal sense, I plan to spend the next sermon on looking at this idea and this biblical command of our Savior to exercise discipline as a church congregation when it's necessary. Our Lord has given us clear instructions, clear commands on when and and how to exhort, admonish, and even rebuke and admonish and censure a brother or sister who stubbornly refuses to listen, stubbornly refuses to hear. Having tried that as an exercise of our individual duties expressed outwardly, If that fails, what recourse do we have? You've gone to your brother. You you, you see he's he's been unruly. Your sister has been idle. They have been disobedient in certain ways to, to God, and you've gone to them privately. You've sought to exercise those individual duties outwardly, and that's not gotten you anywhere. You just throw up your hands and say, that's all I can do. But he said, no, no, there's more. We now have corporate duties that are exercised publicly. So I'll spend an entire sermon just dealing with those issues. But we, we, have, we have a charge to us to, to devote ourselves to prayer publicly, worship publicly, participation in, in the Word of God and, and sacraments, the public admonishment and public discipline. And, and here we find this, this vivid image. Paul uses somewhat of a mixed metaphor. You know, we, we've looked at the metaphor of the body, and we have various parts that are all joined together into a unified whole. Uh, parts that, that some of our parts we can see, you know, fingers and toes and eyes and ears and elbows, and then we have inward parts and 
uh, livers and gallbladders and lungs and all those kinds of things that are all part of a unified whole, even those things which we can't see. Other things which we, for the sake of modesty, cover in public. And yet Paul says all of that is part of the body. There's a unity in that diversity. And But Paul and Peter also use another very vivid metaphor. And that is a, a, a metaphor of building, of construction, and specifically construction with stones. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul calls you and me living stones, being formed and shaped and assembled together by a master builder who's not human. It is the Spirit of the living God who's assembling these stones together. In Ephesians 2, Paul uses the same kind of metaphor. He says, in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. You ever looked carefully at an old stone building or old stone wall? I'm not talking about the uniform bricks. I'm talking about an old one that's got stones of all different shapes and sizes. Have you ever watched a, a stonemason work? Those guys are, are incredible to see, the kind of skill. But to see him with a pile of, of rocks that are all dissimilar, the different shapes and sizes, and to form all of those into one unified whole. So if you step back at 100 yards or so, what do you see? You see unity. You see one stone wall or one stone building. But when you get close, what do you see? You see big stones. Little stones. Stones, some of them are nice and symmetrical. Man, that was an easy one to fit in. Then you see this other one that's got that kind of sharp edge on the end, and you go, how in the world did he get that one to fit? And how, not only fit, but to interlock it with another stone that just happens to be almost the mirror image of it. See, it's a master builder. That's the other metaphor that the Word of God gives to us with respect to the body of Christ that you, me, we are being built together on living stones. And, and sometimes that master mason has to shape us, has to knock off an edge, has to remove a little bit to get us to fit just right. And in that, we see the display of the unity in diversity and the diversity in unity. So whether it's the round stone or the square or the symmetrical or that oddball stone that you think will never fit, in the wisdom of God it does. You do. I do. And so it is with the Spirit of the living God. He forms us together, all manner of stones, into a dwelling place for God Most High. So saints, will you think about it in this way? Think about your duties as, as a church member to other church members. Will you think about it in those ways? You have individual duties that are expressed privately. And yet, those duties don't affect just you. Positively or negatively, those individual duties which are expressed privately have a profound effect upon your brothers and sisters around you. Secondly, will you think about your individual duties that are exercised outwardly? What are those things that God has given to you, maybe only to you to do? Maybe everybody in the church, maybe you alone have this particular skill, this particular gift, this particular opportunity, 
or just this particular providence. You happen to be the one there when your sister is in distress. You happen to be the one there when your brother stumbles. Are you willing to exercise your duties, your private duties, your individual duties, and exercise them publicly, outwardly? And will you meditate upon your corporate duties that are exercised publicly? Some of those we've already looked at in previous sermons, and and I hope to, in the next sermon, look at the corporate duty of public censure. What happens when an erring sheep refuses to return, refuses to heed the voice of his shepherd, refuses to hear the voice of her shepherd, and will not return to the fold? Will you think about those corporate duties that are to be exercised publicly? I pray that that these, these categories might be of some hope or help to you as you meditate not only further upon 1 Corinthians 12, we've only touched... We won't skim the surface of that, of that text. But enjoy that metaphor. Uh, uh, allow the Spirit of God to help you uh, work through that and see how it can apply to you. Not that you're doing an anatomical lesson to decide what part of the body you are. That's not the point. But it's to see how do the, how do the parts fit together. What are the responsibilities of one to another? and What is the blessing to the whole or the detriment to the whole when one of those parts is lacking? Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks for the perfection that has been made known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we contemplate these duties that we owe to you individually, as we contemplate the duties that we owe to one another, both privately and corporately, we are overwhelmed. And surely any humble mind will see in himself, in herself, a a lack, a falling short. I pray for the grace of your Spirit to impress upon those who belong to you by faith that Christ has done all of these things perfectly and sufficiently on our behalf. Father, you cause us to flee to him in renewed repentance renewed faith, trusting that he is able to save to the uttermost, trusting that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, trusting that all of those who confess their sin to God will have that sin both pardoned and cleansed. We pray this for Christ's sake and for our good. Amen.